Okay, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace to us and your kindness through our Lord Jesus Christ and for the blessings we enjoy each day that you give us life and breath. Thankful for our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, their desire to serve and follow you and pray for those who are suffering difficulties, especially physical difficulties. Um, as we get older, we've all experienced some of these things, but we pray for Lori especially and Hugh and some others who are, have ongoing chronic issues and pray that you'll give grace and strength, healing to them. Pray you'll enable us uh, tonight to understand your word and to be able to <clears throat> see how it fits into our lives and how it instructs us in your plan for us and how we might serve you in a way that will be pleasing and honoring to Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so um, we are looking. Uh, last time we were actually in chapter six. We're still just tonight going to finally finish up this first major section, which is a broad sort of defense of his ministry against criticism, I call it, and it involves a lot of things. Uh, the last uh, section here is a, an appeal for separation from sin and full reconciliation to the Apostle Paul, um, 611 uh, through 716. And we were dealing with this section last time and about to finish it up. And this involves uh, Paul, uh, you know, there have been some difficult uh, difficulties between Paul and the church, as we've talked about week after week. And uh, <clears throat> this, this, uh, some of this comes out in 1 Corinthians, and then Paul made that visit we call the painful visit, and it didn't go well in Corinth. He returns to Ephesus and writes a letter, sends it by Titus. And uh, now Titus has come and joined him in Macedonia, and Paul is writing 2 Corinthians. And so now in this letter, he's appealing to the Corinthians to, we saw beginning in six, chapter 6, verse 11, to open their affections to him. That is, he feels, he senses that there is some distance between them and him still. Uh, we learn from chapter 7, as we read, and we'll read again, that Titus has joined him in Macedonia and said, hey, they have repented. They're in agreement with you. They love you, Paul. They have an affection. They long for you. But Paul still senses there is a problem. And, he, and he's getting that, I'm sure, from Titus. There's still some difficulty there. So he starts with an appeal to open their affections to him. And he says, you know, in 611, uh, we have opened our hearts to you. Um, we've spoken freely to you. We're not withholding our affection or anything that. So, you know, you should do the same for us. And then uh, we see really what's apparently behind this uh, lack of uh, openness between the Corinthians and Paul is probably what we see in 614 through 71. 
and that is their sin in their lives. And that sin is their ongoing association with unbelievers that they shouldn't have. Now, obviously, we should associate with unbelievers. We will, and we can, and we do, and we should. But, you know, there's limits to that association. It doesn't involve engaging in sinful activities with unbelievers. And that's what's going on here, apparently, as we as 1 Corinthians brings out. Um, they had a hard time separating themselves from pagan rituals and ceremonies at the local temple. So much, so much of the uh, local society involved around pagan temples, birthday parties, celebrations, civic ceremonies. I mean, you can go to a patriotic pra parade today and you don't, it's not, there's not a religious connotation to it. You as a Christian can go to a, you know, a Thanksgiving day parade or you can go to a July the 4th parade. There's nothing, but that wasn't true in Corinth. The civil and the religious were associated and there was often pagan worship and sacrifice and so on, idol worship. So that's a continuing problem that Paul is addressing here. So he urges them to separate from this kind of thing, which they apparently haven't fully done. And that's in 6.14 through 7.1. And then in 7.2, he comes back to what he had in 6.11 through 13. Again, a renewed appeal for openness toward Paul. Uh, you know, make room for us in your heart. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one and so forth. He again appeals, uh, makes that appeal. And then he goes into the report uh, from Titus. Uh, the fact that Paul has left Ephesus and he's gone to Troas. He didn't find Titus there. He went to Macedonia and now he has met Titus. And he says, you know, we came to Macedonia in uh, chapter 7, verse 5, and I was still very concerned, conflicts, fears. But then, verse 6, Titus comes and joins Paul, and he's greatly comforted by that. And Titus says they have responded well to the severe letter. They've repented. They I love you and so forth. They have a concern for you and so on. So he says, you know, in spite of what I just said, <laughs> I realize that you have made a major turn here, you know, and that this is a, a very good thing. So he says, uh, you know, in verse uh, six, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but your also the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. So my joy was greater than ever. And now we come to uh, uh, further discussion. Uh, and this is the report from Titus. And Paul now uh, talks about the severe letter that he had written uh, uh, to the Corinthians. And remember, <clears throat> we talked about, you know, the correspondence with Corinth. And we we're dealing here now with this severe letter that Paul is explaining in Second Corinthians. Paul is writing letter number four, but he had written this severe letter delivered by Titus. Titus has now come back, has now joined Paul in Macedonia. 
And uh, <clears throat> that's what Paul is going to talk about. So he, he, mentions, he, he discusses the severe letter. He says, for even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's that severe letter we're talking about here. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorrow, sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. <clears throat> so I say here that the phrase, my letter, refers to, as we've noted a number of times, to a severe letter. Letter number three here, no longer extant, that is, no longer known to exist, uh, that was written after 1 Corinthians and Paul's painful visit and delivered by Titus. From the report of Titus, Paul had learned for the first time that his letter had caused the Corinthians considerable distress, at least, he says in verse 8, for a little while. So, you know, Paul is their spiritual father. He established a church. The initial converts were under his ministry. And so Paul's first reaction, he said, when I heard that you were hurt by this, my first reaction, he says, was to regret, in a sense, to regret that he had written so stern a letter that the Corinthians were pained by it. He said, uh, um, I did regret it. He said, I do, uh, you know, if my, if my sorrow caused letter, I do not regret, though I did regret it. And then he gives the reasons I see four, there's, probably afford it. For I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a while. Um, so Paul initially uh, was pained by the sense that when, he, when, when Titus told him this, that what distress it caused him. But apparently at a later time, you know, maybe after Titus had completed his report or after Paul had had time to think about on the situation, his initial regret, regret regret, which was caused by sort of a natural, spontaneous reaction, you know, when he heard that the Corinthians were very upset by this, you know, Paul was thinking about his letter. Uh, his initial uh, regret caused, you know, uh, disappeared because he realized that uh, out of this temporary pain that they suffered uh, had come sincere repentance, you know, so it was a good thing. Yeah, the letter was hard, hard for them, hard for Paul, but it had a good result. It resulted in their repentance. So at the time of writing of this letter, Paul could say, I do not now, that is, regret it. Now I'm happy because your sorrow led you to repentance, he says in verses 8 and 9. I see here the Corinthians did not merely regret what they had done. They repented of it. Repentance not only recognizes the wrong, but seeks to rectify it. But of what had the Corinthians rep repented? 
probably their failure to defend Paul before his detractor. Now, in verse 12, Paul mentions the detractor. This is the guy who opposed him when he made that visit, that painful visit that we have here on the page here, Second uh, Corinthians 2.1, where he mentioned that visit. Um, probably, um, probably it's uh, from a failure to defend him from this one who did the wrong. In verse 12, he talks about the one who did the wrong. Paul puts it in kind of abstract terms. He doesn't like to make it too personal, like he's really been hurt and, you know, he's a real victim. He puts everything, he doesn't even mention his own name here, as we'll see. Um, but he talks about the one who did the wrong. So the Corinthians, we know, we've talked about, repented by admitting their blame and punishing the offender. Now, he's already talked about that in 2.6. He'll mention it again in verse 11. Um, you know, how their reaction, but back in 2.6, he talked about, you know, the punishment that's been inflicted by the majority is sufficient. Remember that? So they had, the majority of the Corinthians had agreed that this, yeah, this, what this guy did was wrong. We need to take action against this guy and so forth. And he repented apparently. And Paul says, yeah, don't continue to punish this guy and all this kind of thing. So, um, so uh, they repented uh, by admitting their blame, as I say here. And, and their sorrow we see here as God intended. For you were became sorrowful, verse 9, as God intended. Uh, that is, it produced repentance. The sorrow that you had about you know, the letter ultimately still did a good thing. It produced repentance. So, you know... We all have experienced that, you know, we, we've heard some tough messages sometimes in sermons <laughs> that were tough on us and, uh, you know, but it caused us to repent. And so that was really a good thing, even though we may not liked it at first, what was being said, you know, or what we read in a book or, you know, that rebuked us. Ultimately, if it caused us to repent and see the truth, then it was a good thing. And that's what happened here. So Paul's letter caused temporary harm, temporary pain, but it really didn't do any harm, as Paul said. Um, you were not harmed in any way by us, he says at the latter part of verse 9. In verse 10, I say here, Paul describes two ways that one can react to pain or sorrow. God's way, which is godly sorrow or sorrow as God intended, invariably produces a change of heart, and this repentance leads to salvation and therefore gives no cause for regret. Sorrow born in a worldly way, on the other hand, does not lead to repentance, but has the deadly effect of producing uh, resentment or bitterness. So, you know, it's possible to respond to rebuke and to correction wrong. Are you know many people are sorry for what they have done. They're kind of sorrow. They maybe sorry they got caught, but it, you know it's just kind of worldly sorrow. Judas would be an example of 
you know, he, it says he went out, he was, he was sorry, he wept, he repented, you know, but it didn't, it wasn't genuine uh, that produced real salvation on his part. Uh, when people do wrong, they often weep, weep, criminals who do wrong and do bad things, weep and they cry and they say, I'm sorry, but you know, really, you know, <laughs> they may go back and do the same thing again. Um, so what makes, you know, the sorrow that we experience, this rebuke that we experience, the sorrow that we feel when we're chastened or, or when we're rebuked, what makes it beneficial is not the experience, there's nothing great about the experience, but the reaction to it. A godly or positive reaction brings blessing. A worldly or negative reaction causes harm, ultimately, like Judas, for instance. Paul says then in verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what affection, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. I say here in the Corinthians response to the severe letter, we have an excellent example of the beneficial outcome of godly sorrow, though it had for a time pained them. So the letter might have compounded trouble at Corinth and caused, you know, widespread resentment against Paul if it had not been received, you know, as godly sorrows, received in a spirit of humility with a willingness to repent and follow God's will. Now, it's difficult to make, you know, to know exactly what Paul means by all these nouns you know, indignation, alarm, affection, concern, you know, and all these kinds of things. Uh, from, from, it sounds like, you know, maybe Titus has given him sort of a blow-by-blow blow description of the Corinthians' reaction, how they responded to the various things in the letter that Titus read to them. Uh, we can sort of guess or have an idea, you know, eagerness here, obviously, eagerness, he explains. Um, uh, what eagerness it showed you, what eagerness to clear yourself, earnestness, I'm sorry. So that probably means earnestness or like seriousness of purpose. They, they were serious about this. They, they didn't take it lightly. Eagerness to clear themselves from blame. You know, they, they wanted to get things straight. Indignation, uh, probably maybe at the, the action of the person who denigrated Paul, they finally, you know, came to their senses and saw this was really wrong. Alarm. Uh, perhaps over their behavior, the effects of their behavior, they realized this is serious, <clears throat> what they had done. Affection here speaks of a kind of affection that's a longing, a longing to see someone in person. That would be Paul. So after they repented of this, their hearts were right. They longed to see Paul and get this straightened out. Concern, maybe concerned about what Paul might do. Um, hard to know here. Paul talks about in various places to the Corinthians using his authority as an apostle to discipline them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.21, he talks about the rod of discipline. Should I come to you, you know, with a rod of discipline? The apostles had authority and powers that be are beyond anything today, of course. And so, you know, maybe there was concern 
uh, possibly, a readiness, you know, uh, to see justice done, you know, by punishing the offender. So, uh, you know, these were Paul sees these as good reactions, whatever we make of the exact details here. The last part I say of verse 11, at every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. That's problematic a little bit, isn't it? Every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter, in light of the Corinthians previously mentioned repentance. You know, if they repented, how were they innocent in this matter? That's a little difficult to know exactly what Paul is getting at here. Uh, maybe innocent, most uh, have suggested here that uh, they put themselves now in the right. Uh, and have come to Paul's defense. So, um, so it, apparently innocent here does not necessarily mean that Paul's readers, the Corinthians, never erred at all in relation to the problem. But maybe it means that since their repentance, they had shown themselves to be without fault. Paul may be generous, be being generous here. I don't know for sure. Verse 12, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong or on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you would see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. Paul now reveals to us that his primary aim in actually writing the severe letter was the Corinthians would come to recognize before God how devoted to their spiritual father they really were. Um, this kind of recognition before God or in the sight of God um, would ensure their future loyalty to the Apostle Paul. Um, since this, the aim was achieved and God prevented the letter from making the Corinthians resentful, Paul was encouraged. He says, I'm very encouraged by what happened here. Um, now, in verse 12 here, Paul uses uh, a kind of a Hebrew manner of expression, choosing the chief reason for his action and stating it in a way that seems to deny other reasons. You state it sort of in an absolute way. You know, because he says here, uh, when I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong. That's the guy who, who offended Paul, who attacked Paul, or on account of the injured party. That's obviously Paul. <laughs> but rather, really, the reason, the ultimate reason, the, the more important reason was before God, you would see for yourselves how devoted you are. Now, that doesn't mean these other reasons weren't really involved, but Paul is stating it, as I say, choosing the chief reason. You have an example like Hosea 6, 6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah. Well, God still desired sacrifices in the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, when Hosea says, when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, it doesn't mean that God threw out the sacrificial system in Hosea 6, 6, and we're not going to have any more sacrifice. Yeah, God still desires sacrifice. But above all, more than anything else, he desires mercy here. So certainly I say, Paul was not saying he didn't have the offender in mind when he wrote, you know, when I wrote you, uh, 
I didn't really have the affinity, but that was not his chief purpose. His point was that the real aim went far beyond, you know, trying to, uh, you know, get, get him, uh, for them to recognize the wrong done to him. That, that was, that wasn't the chief reason. The chief reason was to restore their relationship with him. That's what was really broken and hurt Paul the most. Uh, now he does. So, so there are these primary objective to restore the relationship and the secondary objective, you know, the, the punishment of the guilty party, which we've seen, uh, the vindication of the injured person, that's Paul, the injured party, you know. Now, who this offender was, again, we've said we don't know exactly. Paul has this, Paul is the nameless injured party, but, you know, we don't know exactly who this person or individual was, except we believe, you know, there was this uh, encounter when Paul made his painful visit, we call it, over to Ephesus. Well, we come now to um, the next section. Uh, we're talking about the report from Titus, the final section here of our whole section of beginning 112 through 716, the joy of Titus. Paul says, in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was. Remember, Titus had been sent to Corinth with the severe letter because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. Uh, I'm sorry, I guess I left up. I had... Uh, I had boasted to him about you and you have not, and you have not embarrassed me, he says. And just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. So I see here, not only was Paul encouraged through the godly sorrow of the Corinthians, but Titus was as relieved and encouraged as Paul. Apparently, Titus had little or no occasion before his visit to Corinth. We don't know that for sure, but it sounds like it here. As bearer of the severe letter to form an independent judgment about the Corinthians. You remember uh, when Paul made his trip to establish the church at Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He had with him uh, Paul... Paul and Silas, and along with them were Timothy and Luke. So those four were the people who originally came, as it's all we know, who came to Corinth. Titus is not mentioned there at that time. Um, so Titus, you know, had apparently no previous, or not much previous, uh, as far as we know. We don't know all the details here, engagement with the Corinthians. So he was dependent on Paul's, Paul's glowing recommendations, I had boasted to him about you. And so the happy result here that Paul uh, talks about, uh, the happy result that Paul talks about here uh, of Titus's visit was that uh, these believers at Corinth had refreshed him. It was a, you know, you know I mean, I don't know what Titus thought when he took this letter, <laughs> 
he might have been thought he's heading for a real bad experience here, but it, it turned out to be a positive experience for him. Uh, and so the idea is, you know, spiritual refreshment, obviously. And Paul was relieved that his, uh, you know, his assurances to Titus, his positive compliments about the Corinthians had not proved unfounded and not, not embarrassing. He wasn't embarrassed by what he said. On the contrary, uh, just as Paul's own truthfulness had been vindicated at Corinth, so also his boasting about them had proved now fully justified. Verse 15, and this affection for you is all the greater when he remembers, that is Titus, that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. So I say the Corinthian Christians had originally received Titus with fear and trembling. This phrase occurs three other times in the New Testament and seems to indicate that the Corinthians were generally fearful, possibly as the severe letter was read, coming to grips with their failures in regard to Paul. And so they all readily complied with the demands Titus had made of them as he's reading this letter. And as Titus recalls uh, this obedience and this respectful deference to him as Paul's a representative, his affections grew all the warmer, verse 15, it says. Um, his affection for you is all the greater, Paul says here. Uh, and so that gave Paul good reason for what he calls, you know, complete confidence in the Corinthians. And that statement, you know, things are settled. I'm glad I can have complete confidence. This gives him now a secure base, a foundation to go forward with another subject, an important subject for the Apostle Paul. And that's, uh, he wants to propose to them now the completion of the collection. And that brings us to chapters um, eight and nine, the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things we read about in Paul's epistles was that Paul was interested in the Gentile churches helping out Christians in Jerusalem. Um, he did this on occasions, and uh, it talks about it in Galatians chapter 2. He talks about it in his epistles. Uh, apparently, there was some very difficult in Jerusalem. Some We don't know all the problems, famine or some poverty, some situation. And Paul saw this as a way of sort of uniting, I think, the Jewish Jerusalem church, mostly Jewish, with the Gentile churches. You want a unified church, obviously, not two separate distinct kind of churches here. And so Paul is very interested in trying to help out. Uh, where there's need here. And uh, he has talked about this to the Corinthians in his first epistle, that is 1 Corinthians. Remember there he said in, in 1 Corinthians 16, now about the collection for the Lord's people. So now Paul is talking about this in 1 Corinthians, but it's been brought up before. This is not the first time. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. 
that's the churches he visited on his first missionary journey. Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Derby, Lystra. Do what I told them to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So I say here, uh, Paul had already given the Corinthians instructions about the offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Thus, we can be sure that as Paul takes up the subject now in 2 Corinthians, this was not the first time the Corinthians had heard of this. In fact, the words now about here in 1 Corinthians 16, one point to a topic discussed in the Corinthians' previous letter to the apostle. Now, uh, going back to our chronology here. Paul had wrote a letter previous to the Corinthian, to 1 Corinthians. He mentions that letter in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. And they wrote a letter back to him. And he starts referring to that letter in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning what you wrote about. And he repeats that several times in the latter chapters of 1 Corinthians. He's referring to the letter they wrote. So this is a topic of discussion between Paul and the Corinthian church. Uh, they have, may have been first informed about the collection by Paul's previous letter, maybe, uh, perhaps written as early as AD 54. So Paul's discussion here suggests that the Corinthians had probably indicated to Paul, you know, their willingness to contribute. It seems very clear from what we read here. I say here, what do we know, uh, what we, do not know is how the Corinthians responded to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Probably progress on the collection had been halted by a number of events. One, the unfortunate incident alluded to in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, 7, 12, and its aftermath. That's this, the guy who did the wrong. So one of the problems probably is uh, there's this, been this breach that developed uh, between Paul. Paul made that painful visit. This person uh, spoke against Paul, argued against Paul, uh, attacked Paul. The Corinthians didn't come to Paul's defense at first, apparently. Paul leaves and goes back to Ephesus. So there's this kind of a breach, that incident. So that would have put a, a damper maybe on the collection Two, the evil influence of the intruders from Palestine, who at least for a period gained their support from some Corinthians sympathizers. Now we haven't come to that yet, <clears throat> but when we get to chapter 10 through 13, we'll see that there have been outside uh, people who have come into the Corinth. Uh, they, they have a Jewish bent, uh, call them here, uh, some from Palestine, and Paul goes into that great detail. They claim a Jewish heritage there, and Paul goes into his Jewish heritage. So um, we'll have to talk about that. Well, I, I'm not going to take time to refer to those sections right now, but we'll see who these people were or pro how Paul describes them. Uh, super apostles, he says, and, and kind of mocking them a little bit. Um, so 
maybe when Paul sent Titus to deliver and reinforce the effect of the severe letter, he probably instructed Titus to revive the collection, uh, collection uh, if the church at Corinth responded positively to the letter, and they did. Uh, if they responded, you know, uh, he wanted them to, um, to continue. He probably wanted Titus to mention the collection, try to get that going again. So now with, uh, you know, firm evidence from Titus to the Corinthians loyalty to him that we've just seen, they are with him again. Uh, Paul is going to discuss the collection again. And he's going to press them for its, you know, completion, its early completion here. So let's look at that. Uh, the contribution of the Macedonians. Paul begins <clears throat> by talking about the Macedonian churches. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in, gener in rich generosity. So I say rather than coming right out and exhorting the Corinthians to give, Paul rather tactfully begins with an example of sacrificial giving the Macedonian churches. I remember who this is. Corinth is... Of course, down here, I don't have my big pointer on tonight. <laughs> Corinth is down here, as we know, and the Macedonian churches are up here, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, at least those three we know of, that Paul established in Acts 16 and Acts 17, Corinth and Acts 18 down here. So uh, he's going to begin by talking about these churches, those churches up north, and how they have been giving their example of sacrificial giving. They had contributed generously, uh, even when they were facing, you know, severe ordeal involving persecution. It says in the midst of a very severe trial. Trial. I say here, as Paul expresses it, their rich generosity was the overflow of overflowing joy and extreme poverty. Verse two there. Their poverty was their poverty no more impeded their generosity than their tribulation diminished their joy. So Paul traces this liberal giving by these, would we say destitute Christians uh, to fellow believers uh, that are not even known to them. That is the Macedonians don't know the Jerusalem Christians at all. Notice he traces this to the influence of God's grace. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. This giving uh, comes ultimately as a result of God's work. We call that God's enablement, God's grace. So this ability, this desire, we can say the ability, the desire to do the good things we do as believers, including in this case, giving monetarily to the church and its missions, is a result of God's grace working in our lives. It shows the result of God's grace working in our lives. And note here that uh, the apostle, 
we'll see this several times brought up, uh, was not concerned about the actual size of the gift, but, but about the attitude of the givers. He speaks uh, of the giver's joy, their overflowing joy and their generosity. Uh, he's more concerned about the relationship between the size of the gift and the resources of the givers, not the ultimate size of the gift. As we'll see, verse three, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. I say it's one thing to see how affluence can well up in generous giving, you know. I mean, we appreciate, you know, the fact that very wealthy people give money to causes, uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or something give a lot of money. We appreciate that. But it's another thing for extreme poverty to overflow in rich generosity. Paul now explains, explains with his four here. First, it was because the Corinthians gave uh, not just as much as they were able, I'd say the Corinthians, <laughs> I should say the Macedonians here, I'm sorry. Uh, it was because the Macedonians gave not just as much as they were able, but even beyond their ability, he says here, amazingly. They gave far more generously than their slender means and adverse circumstances really, you know, would seem to permit them to give. If we just looked at that, uh, you know, kind of objectively, we would be amazed at how much they gave in regard to their income and, and, uh, and their wealth and what they had. Second, verse four, um, acting on their own initiative, they urgently pleaded with Paul for the privilege of sharing in the collection. Um, that's another amazing thing. Uh, they, uh, they pleaded with Paul for this opportunity. Uh, um, verse four, they pleaded, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Um, in other words, the Macedonian churches were not pressured into giving here. <clears throat> so Paul wasn't pressuring them. He just, they, they, they pleaded with him. I guess, he, you know, he talked about the situation in uh, Jerusalem that he knew about in Judea. And they, on their own, asked, you know, to be able to help in this situation. I mean, verse 4 seems to imply maybe a reluctance on Paul, you know, they pleaded with us and Paul probably didn't feel like asking them because of maybe their situation at the time. He knew of their poverty as we, as he mentions in verse two, in the midst of severe trial, um, difficulties and so forth. Third here, verse five, the generosity of the Macedonian churches was possible because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to Paul. So the reason the Macedonian churches here um, 
exceeded Paul's expectation was that they, I say, did not restrict their contribution to financial aid. On the contrary, Paul says, by the will of God, uh, they dedicated themselves first and foremost to Christ, but also to Paul here for the uh, performance of any service in connection with the collect collection, verse 5. Uh, they recognize that dedication to Christ involved dedication to uh, the servants of Christ and dedication to the servants of Christ, like Paul was really a dedication to Christ. And Paul says all of this, of course, is God's will. And then by the will of God also to us, he says. Um, we come to verse six now. Encouragement to similar generosity in Corinth. So he's talked about the Macedonians first. And now he encourages the similar kind of generosity in Corinth. And he begins with a challenge for them to complete the collection, something that had already begun, but probably been halted, not completed. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. The wonderful example of the Macedonians, verses 1 through 5, encouraged Paul to make arrangements for the completion of the Corinthian offering. To this end, he announces his plan to send Titus to supervise the effort. So we urge Titus, verse 6, to bring to completion this act of grace on your part. So unlike the Macedonians, apparently they were not facing persecution. They were not apparently in desperate financial straits. And so Paul sees them, they should be more willing to cooperate or to contribute here. Uh, I say here, Paul notes that the Corinthians had earlier made a beginning. In the context, it's clear uh, that it was a beginning on the collection when he was at Corinth. Uh, when it occurred, it, you know, it's not exactly certain. Uh, but there was some previous, you know, uh, time that this thing began. Uh, uh, may have been when Titus uh, had delivered the severe letter. We don't, we don't know exactly sure. But, um, but, but, um, Paul is now urging Titus to make another a visit. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace. So Paul is urging Titus, we learn from this letter, to return and, uh, and to finish this collection uh, so that you know, it won't have to be done when Paul gets there. There won't be any pressure from you know, Paul showing up, as he talked about, in 1 Corinthians. Um, now, a special collection from, a, a special visit from Titus wouldn't necessarily um, 
wouldn't necessarily guarantee the success of the collection. So Paul appeals to the Corinthians here uh, to exhibit, you know, I guess we could say every kind of spiritual spirituality. Um, he uses here the word grace of the virtue of giving, the grace of giving. See that you excel in this grace of giving. And so he puts this grace, notice, of giving alongside other things that we think are very important. Uh, you excel in faith and speech and knowledge. These are things that the Corinthians thought a lot of. Uh, if you study 1 Corinthians, you can see how much emphasis there is on that. They thought of these, the Corinthians thought of these speaking, various kinds of speech, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, gifts of knowledge. They thought, they thought highly of those things. Paul sees this on an equal level, he says. Uh, these are also signs of God's grace in your life. This ability to give and desire to give is also a sign that God is working in your life. Um, and so uh, he wants the Corinthians to exhibit this grace of liberal giving as well. Verse 8, for I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, you know, particularly here, the Macedonians. Paul is quick to add that he's not issuing commands, though apparently he had full apostolic authority to do so. You know, we talked about this uh, authority. Uh, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, but so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord has given us for building you up rather than tearing you down. In chapter 13, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. So, you know, this is a serious matter here. And so Paul says, I'm not, I'm not using my apostolic authority here to command you, though I could. I could. When an apostle like Paul said something, that was as good as scripture. <laughs> you know, that was... That was God, you know, you know these, these apostles were representatives of Jesus Christ on earth. There aren't any apostles today. There's no one who has that kind of authority. Well, except when I speak, but, you know, otherwise, I'm just joking, of course. But our authority is really scripture. That's, that's our final authority. So everything has to be judged by this ultimate authority of scripture. But the apostles spoke as scripture, as God, you know, speaking. So that was quite something different. And Paul could have commanded here, but he preferred to request, to suggest, to encourage, or to appeal. That's certainly the way you would want things to be. Um, but he saw, Paul saw obviously in the enthusiastic generosity of the Macedonian churches, a very convenient uh, standard and example a standard for assessing uh, the genuineness of the Corinthians profess, profess love for him. If they love him and they love other believers as they profess to do, then this should be, this example of the Macedonians should be quite an incentive to arouse them to action again. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And encouraging the Corinthians to bring their contributions to a satisfactory completion, Paul has thus far appealed to the example of the Macedonians, verses one through five, to the Corinthians on promising beginning, verse six, to their desire for spiritual excellence, verse seven, and again to the earnestness of the Macedonians, verse eight. Now he turns to the supreme example of Christ. And so obviously Paul sees in Christ the finest example of one who showed eagerness and generosity and giving as a demonstration of his love. So if the sacrificial giving of the Macedonians did not stimulate them to give, certainly <laughs> the example of Christ's selflessness should do the trick, you would think. Paul depicts the glory of heavenly existence as wealth in comparison with which the with, with, with which the, the lowliness of earthly existence amounts to poverty. Christ became poor, you see, Paul is saying, by the act of the incarnation. Paul, you know, we think of a passage, Paul is, you know, that he writes uh, later in Philippians 2, who being in the form of God, Jesus Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made human likeness, found an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even the death on the cross. So um, uh, through Christ's voluntary uh, surrender of his glory, others derive spiritual wealth. You know, Ephesians talks about our spiritual blessings in Christ. We have this wealth, spiritual blessings. And so the Corinthians could do well to emulate the example of Macedonians and especially the example of Christ himself. Verse 10, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. How about that? Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. At verse 10, Paul once again stresses that he's not giving orders, but offering his best judgment. Though an imperative follows, you know, finish the work, but his is probably an imperative used as an exhortation, not as a true command. Paul gives two reasons to finish the work of the collection. He says, you know, he says, first of all, a considerable amount of time has passed. Last year, you were the first. So it's been some time since they expressed their eager willingness to help. Um, you know, their final, their good intentions are going to amount to nothing if they don't finish the work. Um, second, the Corinthians enjoy, enjoy a, right now a kind of a, precedence over the, the Macedonians. Uh, the Corinthians were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Um, it's interesting that Paul says nothing about the Old Testament tithe in this section about giving. But instead, the Corinthians are to give according to their means, according to their means. Um, we're not called to give or to pledge what we do not have. Instead, our giving is to be based on actual income. 
um, though we are under, uh, though we're not under the command to tithe, and that's clear here, you know, it is a helpful benchmark to judge our giving. Um, you know, people ask, you know, how much should you give? What would be a good thing to start with? Well, Paul, you know, says here we give according to our means and so forth. But, you know, if we have a benchmark, that's a helpful thing. Tithe's a helpful thing. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Paul now elaborates upon the phrase, according to your means, at the end of verse 11. Provided a gift is willingly given, its acceptability is determined solely on the basis of what a person might possess, not on the basis of what he does not own. So God assesses the value here of a monetary gift, not in terms of the actual amount given, as we know, but by comparing what is given with the total financial resources of the giver, proportional giving, not a fixed percentage, like the tithe we had in the Old Testament, but proportional here. Uh, no one is expected to give according to what he does not have, but here according to what he has. I'm going to go on just for a moment here because we're a little bit behind. So I'm going to pose on you just a little longer here. One final section. The aim of equity verses 13 through 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The gold is equality. Perhaps one reason the collection project had been languishing at Corinth was that there was some objection to it by the Corinthians who may have felt that they had enough financial problems of their own. Paul might seem to be imposing fresh burdens on the Corinthians so that others might become free of burdens. But Paul says his goal is there might be equality. The word, uh, you know, translated equality here is found in one of the time here, uh, and that's in Colossians 4.1, where it says, uh, masters provide for your, slave what, for your slaves what is right and fair. So it means what's equitable, what's fair, Paul's not arguing for equality of supply, but the necessity of basic needs being met. Paul's not advocating here a wholesale redistribution of wealth. Uh, Paul says here, needs are to be met from a person's surplus, your plenty, uh, not necessary income, uh, but what one needs for the basic you know, what, what one needs for the basic net. So you, you, you don't have to, you're not supposed to give from your, what you have to have for the basic necessities of life. Uh, but you're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to give, Paul says he's asking them to give out of their surplus. The rich, even the rich are not called upon to give so lavishly that they become poor and the poor become rich. That's not the, the goal here but that those who enjoy a greater share of material blessings are called upon to make certain that those who have a smaller share through no fault of their own are not in want. So let me say that again. Paul is saying that those who have a greater share of material benefits are called upon 
you know, in the church, we're talking about here, Paul is talking about in the church in this sense, um, to make sure that those who have a lesser share through no fault of their own <laughs> are not in want. Again, Paul's talking about the, the, the need to give to provide basic necessities of life, which, you know, in Paul's day amounted to food, clothing, and shelter, according to 1 Timothy 6.8. I say the Macedonian churches in giving out of their poverty were the exception rather than the rule of giving out of their plenty. They're the exception. They gave even beyond their ability and thus were a notable demonstration of God's grace. Now, Paul is not asking the Corinthians to do what they did. He's just asking them to give out of their plenty here. So they're apparently not in any sort of financial distress. When Paul says here in verse 14 that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. There is the Jerusalem church that you're giving to their plenty in turn. He's not predicting, you know, economic plenty in Jerusalem and then a economic dearth in Corinth that would reverse the present roles. But he saw that with the uncertainty of economic conditions in the first century, it's not inconceivable that the, the Jerusalem churches would someday might be called to come, become donors to help the Corinthians, you know, if they had the need. As it is written, verse 15, the one who has gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So Paul now turns the Old Testament account of God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the wilderness to illustrate the need for equity that he talks about. Although some gathered more than others and some less, the needs of all were met. The key phrase is as much as needed. It's an equity of needs met rather than an equality of supply that Paul is illustrating here. And that's what he's arguing for here that those who have plenty can help uh, with those who have genuine needs through no fault of their own. He's not advocating, obviously, communism uh, in that kind of sense that we think of it uh, in the modern times. All right. Sorry to go over there a little bit, but uh, some reason uh, the speaker talks too much and doesn't seem to get much done here. So we we need to have a talk with him and see what can be done about that. In